Research for the game music at Queen's Project is supported by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada and the Dan School of Drama and Music. This podcast is recorded at the Sonic Arts Studio at Queen's University. Hello, and welcome to Game Music 101, a podcast about video games and how their music influences our choices. I'm your host, Stephanie Lind, and I'm here with my research assistants, Andrew Bennett, Brooke Spencer, Caitlin Sari, and media assistant, Michelle Kaspowski. Today we're going to talk all about geoculture. So to start off today's podcast, I think the most important thing that we should do is to define this idea of geoculture. And Caitlin, I believe you're going to do that for us. All right, so IGI Global defines geoculture as a geographic location that encompasses shared cultural characteristics. This can be in art, music, architecture, even the people. It's just what identifies a large geographic location from other ones, what gives it its unique look and unique feel in its culture. Great. Dr. Lynn, did you want to touch on that a little bit more? Yeah, I think I want to talk a little bit specifically how it connects to video games, because it seems like we're just defining something that's a characteristic of the real-life world here. Geoculture in video games is interesting because there's very obvious cases where we're actually just replicating a real-world culture within a game. But there's also these cases where new cultures are created within games, but actually use properties that are from real-world cultures. And they're not necessarily connected in the way that you think they're going to be connected. A really obvious example is Skyrim. If you take a look at the culture in that game, it's very much inspired by Nordic cultures, but they're not actually calling themselves Nordic people in the game. They're creating their own fictional races and their own fictional mythologies, but they're basing them off real-world places, architecture, music, and mythology. Okay, let's get started then. Brooke, why don't you start us off with Super Mario Odyssey? Alright, so I decided to look at the game Super Mario Odyssey and particularly looking at the Toasterina level or the desert level in this game. Two pieces that were particularly interesting to me that I kind of looked at thoroughly was the Toasterina Ruins and the Toasterina Daytown. And I think this is very interesting because there's the use of mariachi within the town and there's also uh, Middle Eastern style music that the desert ruins try to emulate in this game as well. And Andrew, you looked at Dawn of a New Time from Battlefield 1. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that game? Yeah, absolutely. So in Battlefield 1, I looked at Dawn of a New Time and In the Name of the Tsar. And there's different elements that led to myself identifying them as different elements of geoculture, whether it's the type of instrumentation used, whether it's the elements of the instrumentation, such as ornamentation or uh, voicing, such as having a voice solo or a piano solo. And within the instrumentation, there's a choice of instruments within the game's music that don't necessarily fit within the style of music that the game is trying to show and the instruments come from a completely different area than the type of music that's being played. Okay. Dr. Lint, you looked at Assassin's Creed and you looked at a few different versions of the game, if I'm correct. So do you want to give us a little bit of an overview about what we can expect to hear from you today? Yeah, um, I took a look at the entire Assassin's Creed series, which as many people know, is literally about a dozen games at this point. The games, if you haven't played the series before, feature historical cultures. So they're they're basically the first example I was talking about, about games that try to replicate real world times and cultures. But what's interesting is that they don't necessarily use period appropriate music. They do in some cases to make references to historical times. In other cases, they use music that is old, but not necessarily particular to the time and place that they're, they're exemplifying within the game. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that. And I'm also going to talk a little bit about how the style of the music for the Assassin's Creed series has changed 
changed over time. And Caitlin, why don't you tell us a little bit about your game? So I decided to look at the Gerudo Town music from Breath in the Wild. And this was interesting to me because of how their acoustic identity actually changed from their first appearance from Ocarina of Time. And it just kind of gives an idea of how geoculture can really affect how the player understands and recognizes a culture and what the music says about those people inside the game. So we have a couple of games here that are making references to real world culture cultures and then other games that are referencing more fictional cultures. I think what might be interesting is starting off by taking a look at the parallels between them and how this influences the music that the gamer is actually experiencing. Andrew, why don't we start with you and why don't we start with Battlefield 1? Yeah, what I was mentioning earlier was that there's different instruments within the three pieces that I mentioned, and these instruments lead to this very new type of music just because of the fact that they're using an instrument from a different country or a different region of the world to create music for the game. For example, in the piece in the name of the Tsar, there's three distinct instruments that are not necessarily from a Russian context, such as the Tibetan horn, the crystal bashe, and the bohak, which are all very different instruments. But but they're used within the music for In the Name of the Tsar. These instruments create a new hybrid type of music that includes instruments from a completely separate country than the style of music that the game is trying to portray. So I think some of us maybe aren't familiar with these instruments. Can you tell us a little bit more about where they come from and how they're played? Like, for example, are they string instruments? Are they wind instruments? What, what kinds of sounds can we expect from them? So to explain what the bohak is, it's a Hungarian instrument constructed in the 1960s that seems to have a keyboard aspect to it as well as plucked strings. It's a very interesting instrument to look at. It's a very obscure instrument. Not a lot of them exist in the world. Patrick Andren stumbled across this instrument and started playing around with it and became infatuated with this idea of including it in the music. According to an EA article on the instrumentation of Battlefield 1, they discovered it had a gritty sound with mythological dark explosions, which they thought was perfect for Battlefield 1 and the instrumentation they wanted. The Crystal Bache, on the other hand, is quite interesting as I relate it to more of a wine glass instrument in a sense. So how the instrument is constructed is very similar to a keyboard layout and it's constructed of glass, and the musician plays the instrument with water on their fingers, and as they touch the pieces of glass, friction is created, creating the sound that the composers were looking so for. So this actually isn't the first instrument like this. An instrument known as the glass harmonica was actually very common around the turn of the 1800s into the 1900s, and was particularly known in the United States, believe it or not. So this sonority is often proved fascinating, particularly from a popular music standpoint. It's even worked itself into the classical world on occasion. Again, it goes back to this idea that this instrument, there's not many that exist in the world. It has a French origin, and because of its sparseness, to hear it in music in a video game is, is quite intriguing. Compare that to the Tibetan horn, which sounds much more like a brass instrument. That is completely normal for our ears to hear as we more associate it with a traditional instrument that we would hear in this type of music. I want to jump in there and touch on this idea of traditional versus non-traditional, because I think that will help give a sense of even more so this idea of expectation. You know, you're talking about the Tibetan horn being something we associate with a more traditional sound. What does that mean when it comes to culture? Talking tradition versus non-tradition. One of the things that I believe that Battlefield 1 and the music associated with it is trying to do is to highlight areas of culture that are not spoken of very 
very often. So for example, it highlights areas of World War I that are not always thought about. The conflict that we immediately think of when we hear about World War I is the trench warfare, which happened for a great amount of time during the war, but there were many other conflicts and many other areas of battle that took place that weren't as advertised and weren't as well known about. And this instrumentation and this music is attempting to highlight these areas and make sure that the importance of them is known as they happened at the same time as the trench warfare. There's a great video on YouTube that the Los Angeles Philharmonic published. And within that video, violinist Vijay Gupta talks about nationalism. And he says, when musicians talk about nationalism, they are talking about music that has a certain flavor of a culture or a nation whether it's in the harmony or in the rhythm or in the orchestral texture. So this is kind of what you're talking about, right, Andrew? You're talking about this orchestral texture within the music. Yes, absolutely. To use an instrument from a specific country is to be nationalistic. You're taking an element from a specific country and putting it into an orchestration where it can be heard and almost emphasized. Yeah, and I just think that it's interesting that you say that because in the game that I looked at, Super Mario Odyssey, there is a certain type of Chinese flute, the Dizi, within the Desert Ruins music. And I think that that's interesting because it's not necessarily what the music is trying to emulate within the game and the type of environment that they're in, but there is this mix of cultures being blurred here. Dr. Lin, you look like you want to jump in on something right now. Yeah, I think this is a really good opportunity to actually expand a little bit, put my professor hat on, and talk a little bit about nationalism in particular. Nationalism as a musical movement in the 19th century in particular is actually studied in classical music scholarship in its relationship to some of the developing countries in Europe. As you may or may not know, the borders of Europe have changed pretty dramatically in the last 150 years. And in particular, a number of countries have arisen out that were formerly part of much larger empires. A really typical example is Poland, which parceled it out into a couple different empires, including what, what was then called Prussia and what was then called the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Looking at Polish nationalism, part of that, how that came about, were composers who were explicitly trying to use Polish kinds of sounds in their music. But what's interesting is that they didn't try to produce authentically Polish sounds necessarily in these pieces. They actually chose particular elements of Polish music and then incorporated them into a broader European classical style of music. A very typical composer that did this is Frédéric Chopin, who despite his French name was actually of Polish origin. He had one Polish parent and one French parent, but he was really an advocate for this rising Polish nationalism political movement, and he wanted to manifest that in his music. The way he ended up doing this was by using particular Polish rhythms or particular Polish ways of organizing dance music. But he still actually used the harmony that was really typical in France and Germany. He used the kinds of phrase styles that were common in France and Germany, and he used the kind of instrumentation that was very popular in Paris, where he was living at the time. So there's this element of nationalization that actually doesn't take the entire culture into account. It's the idea of reflecting an aspect of the culture via an aspect of the music. Often when nationalist music is talked about, there's also this contrasting idea of universalism in music. And Beethoven is another example of an artist who, when we're talking about giving this more generic, universal idea of what classical music sounds like, he's another artist who that was done with. So this is something that we see happen continuously throughout music and in other areas, I suppose. 
Right, and I think it's very common in media as well, this idea in film and game that certain kinds of sounds are used to reference certain time periods or certain events. I mean, that is the focus of our research project in many ways. But it's done with historical items, like you mentioned, it's done with a lot of Beethoven, Mozart a lot of the time, it's done with Chopin in particular, and they're really generalized references. They are not meant to reference a very specific year in a very specific place. They're meant to reference the idea of Western Europeanness around the 1700s or 1800s. Right, and coming from a singer's perspective, this actually makes me think of a commercial that I saw recently, the 2018 commercial for one of the Volvo models where they used the Queen of the Night aria within the commercial. And you can check out the commercial on YouTube. It's actually available online there, but you'll see there really the branding is going for this luxurious style. Yet a lot of people hear that Queen of the Night aria. It's a very famous aria and they will immediately associate that with a Western classical sound. However, for anyone who knows more of the translations of this aria, it's actually a raging mother. And it's completely the opposite in a certain way of what we expect to be this very laid back and cool collected luxury that we see portrayed to us in the Volvo commercial. And I find that quite interesting. Yeah, the association that they're making with that tune is this is the kind of music that classy people at the opera would listen to. Right. It has nothing to do with the plot of the opera, it has nothing to do with the lyrics of the opera. It's very much about establishing social position. That leads me to a question about culture within games and the responsibility if we want to call it that, and if we think that's maybe what it is, that game designers have to actually provide authentic representation of cultures through the music. Is there a responsibility to do that? Do we think that it's a creative field and that offers a point of license for creativity? Dr. Lin? Yeah, I just wanted to quickly jump in uh, because it's a really interesting question because with the Assassin's Creed series, in terms of their visual design, they are super, super interested in authenticity. They will go and spend over a year scanning, for example, Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris to be able to accurately represent it, to try to reproduce historical places like the, the pyramids in Egypt, for example, as accurately as they could to the time period. So this idea of responsibility to create it accurately is actually being achieved on the visual side, but it's not necessarily being achieved on the musical side, and there doesn't seem to be as much of a desire to do it on the musical side. And I think it really depends on what the developers want to do with the music, because when they're creating a fictional universe, it's more like taking elements from cultures to create something new. But if they're trying to establish a real-world culture and reference that culture specifically, they have more of the responsibility to make sure that they're checking that perhaps the music that they're using can be used in certain contexts. There was an old Muslim chant that existed in a sound library that a lot of video games actually used. O Queen of Time actually used it originally in one of the early versions, but that chant was a religious chant that could not be played with music, so they had to take it out. And there was another game, I can't remember which, which actually was pulled from shelves because it had it in the game, and the culture that it comes from finds it offensive to include that. So it really depends on what you're using and how you're using it and what you want to do with it. But it really does come down to the developers making sure that they do their due diligence. If they're using sound libraries, they want to make sure that it's actually something that they can incorporate in the way that they want to. Dr. Lin, 
Going back to Assassin's Creed, specifically how the music changes in the games over time and whether or not that element of authenticity impacts the player, how they perceive the culture within the games. Yeah, I think it obviously depends on the individual player because we're all going to come into these games with our own personal experiences of either knowing or not knowing these styles of music. What I can say about the Assassin's Creed series is that the first game in the series differs quite dramatically from the games in what I'll call the interior of the series, the sort of the games 3, 4, 5, and 6, for example. And the shift there is that Assassin's Creed 1 features a soundtrack that basically features historically accurate elements, but with very digital kinds of sounds over top of it. And that actually reflects the narrative of the game. The game is all about essentially you doing the sort of like fake time transportation, where you are a modern-aid person in a scientific laboratory but they're accessing your memories basically to recall the memories of your ancestors. How do they do this? Well, they do this a couple different ways. From a musical standpoint, there's a very extensive use of what's called Gregorian chant, which is basically church music chant from the time period. And they do that in Assassin's Creed 1 specifically to reflect the Christian cultures that the player encounters as a character throughout the game. There's also elements of Middle Eastern chant and Middle Eastern instrumentation, which is once again reflecting the real world connection there of you are in the Holy Land, you are transitioning between areas controlled by Christian forces and areas controlled by Muslim forces. And so these are elements that are actually incorporated in the game. The contrast here in Assassin's Creed 1 is that there's this continual shift between those traditional kinds of ancient musics with modern digital sound. So we get static noises, we get a lot of digitally produced waveforms, we get this sort of cutting in and out effect that could only be produced digitally. It's not actually possible to create those sounds with so-called natural instruments. Moving to the other games in the series, the game designers actually took a pretty significant shift in how they were dealing with the musical style. They no longer had this historical underlay with digital sounds cutting in and out. They actually shifted to something much more like a traditional kind of soundtrack for video games, featuring a much more standard instrumentation your sort of typical orchestral video game score, regular tonal harmony, regular time signatures, regular ways of organizing rhythms. So they're very much sounds that don't necessarily sound like old sounds. Now there are exceptions as you go through the series, but those middle games in the series are very much about creating a modern sound that keeps the player energized, and less so about creating sounds that reference the historical period that the game is referencing. This does shift. The last two games in the series, uh, Origins and Odyssey, actually have started to return to elements that do reflect the cultures and the time periods a little bit more. So there's more use of folk instruments, for example, and there's more use of scales and intonations that are traditional to those geographic areas, which are basically Greece and Egypt. Caitlin, for your game, you found quite a bit of online discussion about this idea of representation and appropriation versus appreciation. Do you want to speak to that a little bit? Yeah, so in Breath of the Wild, the Gerudo culture takes a lot of influences from Arabic culture and their visual representation and the stereotypes that they use as well. The Gerudo is a desert culture. There's a segregation aspect. Gerudo are all women and men are not allowed in their society, which is a reverse of the segregation scene in Arabic communities where men and women are separated. In Breath of the Wild in particular, they actually do a really heavy influence from ancient Saudi Arabia in the architecture. Hussein Almar describes in his article called Breath of the Wild missed an opportunity to represent Arabic culture on Vice. 
What he was actually saying was that he liked that Breath of the Wild referenced this aspect of their culture. He liked how they brought the visual aspects into the architecture. He didn't talk much about the music, but he thought that it didn't go far enough in representing conflicts. So he, he liked that it was there and thought that they could actually do more with it. And I find that a lot of developers and a lot of people are afraid to incorporate deeper conflicts and things in other cultures because they're afraid to misrepresent it or make some sort of statement about it. But really, it comes down to communicating with those people and understanding exactly where you can draw the line on certain issues because it's not about erasing those issues. It's more about you can use it in the game, but you just need to talk to the cultures involved and figuring out exactly what you can do with it. Hussein Almar actually found that the segregation aspects could make the Gerudo culture feel more realistic and more like it's a lived-in society rather than what he called a window dressing, how they use segregation in the game. So is this something that we're actually seeing more and more of in the video game industry in general? Like, is there an increase in consultants and people who are advising specifically for design companies who have that role of going outside and digging into that research and communicating with specialists, with important figures within certain cultures to make sure that this actually happens? I think on the music side, there's been a really big shift towards actually recording instruments live rather than getting sound libraries. So in that case, when you actually bring in a musician who understands that instrument and who's from that culture, they can actually bring their opinions on how that music is implemented to the project. I'm not sure the inner workings of companies, but since culture has actually been such a heavy topic in these recent years, it seems to be that we're seeing less blatant use of just stereotypes in music, they still exist in tropes and stereotypes because they're still used as a shorthand for Western audiences especially. But we're seeing like a more diverse sound being used in video games as the industry develops. Yeah, I think part of the risk comes when people are using sound libraries because they never communicate with real people from real cultures in that case. They're purely just taking the sound or the clip for the sake of having something that has a particular sonic profile yeah. and ignoring the cultural references or the cultural context of where those things come from. Right. So I looked at Mario Odyssey and something that was kind of interesting going off of what Caitlin was saying is the online controversy around the Sand Kingdom Tostarina. So I looked at the Mario Wiki fandom site and there was a lot of controversy on Mario Odyssey concerning the occult, transgenderism, animal cruelty, as well as cultural appropriation. Many people were upset with the character Mario having the option of purchasing a sombrero or a poncho when in the Sand Kingdom and the Sand people being these skeleton-like figures with Day of the Dead makeup. The belief that this outfit is seen as the, quote, default for the game representations and the visual shorthands are disrespectful. So I kind of did some research here on social media to those who had this Mexican lineage or who live in Mexico and have spoken out how this really isn't a problem because it promotes their culture and it actually is kind of this accurate representation. So there's this Twitter user at Jaspec who is an amateur game designer, graphic designer, and musician who in his bio defines himself as Mexican, tweeted, Mexican here. Don't try and speak for us. We Mexicans love this stuff and like seeing our culture and media. Another tweet that I've seen by user at RebHeartsYou, quote, I am from Mexico and I am honored that Nintendo does this, unquote. 
And I also found on IGN that they promote this YouTuber called Alpha Mago Sin and this article that revolves around his YouTube video, Super Mario Odyssey Accused of Racism and Cultural Appropriation. And the article quotes the YouTuber saying, whatever happened to being encouraged to embrace other cultures and diversity? Hell, when I was in school, we had days dedicated to learning about other cultures. And yes, some wore a sombrero when we were learning about Mexico. Does that mean we were practicing cultural appropriation? Unquote. And I think this is something that we should probably recognize that just because characters have these associated characteristics to a culture doesn't mean that it's actually appropriation or something negative. Yeah, I think we run the risk here of erasure as opposed to appropriation, right? Mm -hmm. Like we're so afraid of doing something that is inappropriate that we completely avoid the culture. And in that case, it's a very monocultural image that we're giving in our media, which of course we don't want to go that way either, right? We need to find a happy balance between the two things. Right. I think there's a certain element of saying that it's a good thing that the conversation is being started and that there's interest being taken in exploring and diving into diverse cultures. Okay, I think we should really take some time to dig into the music itself. And Brooke, within Super Mario Odyssey, in Toast Arena, there's very much a Mexican influence to this music. How is that established? Right. So when you enter the town of Tostrina, you hear this kind of mariachi band music that's looping continuously. This is characterized by the use of instruments like trumpets, uh, small hand drums, violin, fiddle, and the guitar playing music with a steady kind of upbeat tempo as well as lively, fast, and often used for these kind of celebrations that can be set with dance as well. It is important to also note that the people have these facial features of skulls with colorful art, kind of like uh, the celebration of the Day of the Dead. And the skeletons carry around maracas, wear some and they have ponchos on. The town itself also is very colorful in terms of the structure and the buildings with these bright reds, yellows, blues, and greens. And also in the game, when you explore the world, there is an upside-down pyramid near the ruins that has been directly stated as influence from Mayan structure Chichen Itza, which is one of the wonders of the world, and it's actually in Mexico. So I think it's interesting that they're using these real-life influences, but they're putting them in the game and using the music to kind of emulate this culture. And what is it particularly that with the music itself, you know, you talk about the mariachi band when you walk into the town, what do those elements sound like? What is this music? Why are we hearing that as Mexican or associating that with this particular culture? So in terms of the mariachi music that we're hearing, I think it's the combination of the instruments used and what we associate as Mexican, this stereotype of mariachi music. And it's very characteristic of what Anglo-centric audiences expect from Mexican culture. There's also the aspect of combining it with the visuals because they are giving a very clear Mexican visual representation with the Day of the Dead and all the other aspects mm -hmm. that we talked about. So the fact that they're mixing the music and that visual representation just makes it so much easier for audiences to be able to identify the mariachi music with Mexico, even if, say, they're not too familiar with mariachi music. Well, I think that's an interesting point. If you have a trumpet lead without all these Day of the Dead elements, you might just hear it as a trumpet emphasis. If you have a trumpet and guitar, along with these other elements that you are clearly associating with Hispanic culture, then all of a sudden you're going to make that connection. You've got that cultural reference to latch on to. This idea going back to traditional versus non-traditional instruments. So if we have something like a trumpet, just like you said, Dr. Lin, on its own, we can interpret that in many different ways. Whereas if we have the use of a non-traditional instrument, we might be more likely to associate that with a specific culture. 
Caitlin, in Breath of the Wild, there's the use of the centaur instrument as an example of something that's a bit more non-traditional for at least Western audiences. Yeah, in Breath of the Wild, the centaur is used to represent desert cultures, and it's a very common instrument to represent desert cultures. Uh, we talked about how it's used in Octopath Traveler for the same reason, actually, for the town sunshade. And in Breath of the Wild, like the mariachi music in Mario Odyssey, the fact that there's so much of a ancient Arabian influence on the architecture, then the audiences can much more readily connect the centaur to Saudi Arabia and those other cultures from that location in the world, rather than just just a generic desert trope. What kind of instrument is the santur? The santur is a hammered dulcimer with metal strings and has a very unique sound to it. To Western audiences, it's very characteristic of what we consider to be desert music. Do you think that's because of the space between the notes? I know the santur, because of the hammered action, you don't have a continuous stream of sound in the same way that you would with something like a wind or a brass instrument. Yeah, even though it's a string instrument, the percussive elements give it more of a foreign feel to it. It has quite a, a unique presence that's not like a Western instruments. A piano has hammers involved too, but the timbre of the strings is very unique. Yeah, and I think I really want to expand on this a bit. I mean, we're using a lot of terms here like foreignness and like unique sound. I think we need to realize that this is very specific to our positionality as North American listeners. For us, the Santour sounds quite exotic because it's not something that we hear in most of the music that we listen to day to day. Whether it's the music on the radio, whether it's the music we're getting on iTunes, whether it's the music that we're hearing on television. It is something that is almost saved for those moments of geoculture. The topic that we're talking about, this idea of connecting it to something that feels foreign to us. That wouldn't necessarily be the case if we are listeners from that part of the world, right? This might be something in our normal sound environment. And I think we need to remember that as we're going through. Something that sounds foreign to us is not necessarily foreign to every single person playing this game. It really depends on your own reference of culture. Going back to this idea of nationalism, folk melodies and folk music is often very tied into that. And Andrew, in your game, and specifically in the song Dawn of a New Time, you found implementation of folk music. Yes, absolutely. So Dawn of a New Time, to give a bit of context, is used as the ending music to one of the campaigns. At the end of this campaign, the main protagonist is left behind as he ensures that the allied forces have left safely a flare shoots across the sky indicating this, and that is the cue for Dawn of a New Time to start playing. The piece itself is based off of a Macedonian folk song called Zaidi Zaidi, of which only part of the original lyrics are included within the game music. The lyrics translate to set, set bright sun, set blackout, and you clear moonlight to run away, drown yourself. This is quite representational as the cutscene shows the sunset as the naval ships pull away from the shoreline and the main protagonist, Frederick Bishop, is left wounded to observe this sunset and this flare indicating safety and the end of a conflict, even though it is indicating a retreat instead of a victory, which is a little bit contradictory. So the Assassin's Creed series actually uses folk music as well, and it's very common in a number of games. I'll use the term steal for lack of a better term, but to essentially steal or borrow folk music that is pre-existing. So Assassin's Creed 3 as well as Assassin's Creed 4 Black Flag both make use of folk style. Black Flag in particular actually has a fairly strong emphasis on the folk song Parting Glass. Of all the money that I have I spent it would come. It's essentially the ending scene where you see your boat leaving harbor after you've sort of successfully finished the campaign. 
And that song is a pre-existing Anglo-Celtic folk song. Specifically, it's from Scotland, and it's still fairly well known today. And so there is this real-world reference, and it's something that would have been active at the time. It's period-appropriate music in this case. It's actually being used to reference time and place. The time and place is that you're in the early United States, you still have this quite strong Anglo-Celtic influence in terms of who the immigrants are at that time in the United States. And so the suggestion is that this is a song that you would actually just hear walking down the street. So I think what's interesting in your game, Andrew, is it's a very similar kind of thing. You're trying to reference time and place. What I also find interesting is that the listener's not necessarily going to understand the lyrics. The lyrics are almost like a subliminal message to connect to what you're seeing in the narrative. Absolutely. No, the lyrics are in Macedonian and unless you know the language you wouldn't understand what they actually translate to. Right. For me, not knowing Macedonian, I couldn't translate the lyrics. However, I'd like to mention that without knowing the lyrics, the song or the lyrics behind the music have an even further meaning even though they translate to something that fits within the scene. For me, it was inspiring to hear this Macedonian folk song played in the background. I should mention that this campaign is based off of the protagonists and the main allied forces are based from New Zealand, not necessarily from where the other allied forces are from, which are within Europe, which is interesting because the New Zealand forces have this Macedonian folk song accompanying them, which juxtaposes the meaning of the music with where the allied forces are from. Well, and I'll point out too that Gallipoli is not exactly in Macedonia. It's getting close. It's in Turkey, but it's not specifically in the area that that folk song is coming from. It's in the region, which is why I think they associate the music with it, which again leads into this idea of nationalism and how we think of one country as being part of a general area, which we can associate different types of music to. Yeah, I do wonder about the idea of stereotype here, because I mean, there's very much a conflation of cultures if we're doing this. We're taking something which is Macedonian and essentially using it to refer to something that's Turkish. And I mean... In many ways, those are very, very different cultures, although to some Western audiences, they might seem similar just because they are generally located in the same part of the world. I mean, that in and of itself, though, does not establish culture, right? There's a number of other elements, such as religion, for example, that establishes culture. Language has a very strong influence on culture. And historical movement of people also has a huge impact on culture. So it's almost a flattening of culture that's happening here, right? The idea that somehow Macedonian is a stand-in for Turkish is... I almost wonder if it's crossing that line that we talked about earlier about whether it's being used appropriately. Absolutely. And it brings up a question of whether the composers intentionally did that or whether it was an unintentional choice to make that generalization or that association. Or maybe there's some reference here we're not even aware of. Maybe there is some Macedonian connection that is not necessarily made explicit. Yeah, I think talking about this idea of intention and the music making us feel a certain way, thinking back to the video I described earlier that the Los Angeles Philharmonic released, the host in that video, Brian Loretzen, presents this idea that nationalistic music is designed to make us feel a certain way, whereas a lot of other music is somewhat ambiguous and open to interpretation. So that makes me think when we're crossing boundary lines, is it because there's that idea that they want you to feel when you're playing that game? And where are they getting that from? Is it crossing those lines? What are they trying to go for with that music? Yeah, I think this is a really important thing to think about because the music really really affects how the player understands the culture that is being presented or what's happening on screen. 
in the case of the Gerudo people, in this unique situation with Breath of the Wild and Ocarina of Time, is they're representing the same type of people that they've established in the previous game, but in a completely different way. And it really changes how the player understands that culture and how they view it. In Ocarina of Time, the Gerudo people live in a fortress rather than Gerudo Town as it's referred to in Breath of the Wild, and the music represents the martial culture of the Gerudo people in Ocarina of Time. They're very aggressive towards the player in the game setting. The music called Gerudo Valley represents this with a really fast, upbeat tempo and a lot of syncopation. The music is synthesized. It has a synth percussion that keeps a consistent rhythm throughout the music, and the guitar and trumpet play the main melodies. It has a very driving force behind the music that really represents how active the Gerudo people are in the game and how it's treated like something for the player to overcome. They get arrested in Gerudo Fortress and they have to get out, and then later they earn the respect of the Gerudo and are allowed to pass through and go into Gerudo Desert to access the temple. Breath of the Wild is a completely different situation. Gerudo Town still doesn't allow men in their town, but it's a much more friendly relationship with the people of Hyrule. The Gerudo are considered a sovereign nation compared to the people of Hyrule. In Ocarina of Time, the Gerudo were very secluded and they didn't let anyone through. In Breath of the Wild, they are found all around the world and they're interacting with everybody in a very friendly manner. And the music represents this. It's a very laid-back rhythm compared to Gerudo Valley. The music in Breath of the Wild called Gerudo Town, there's a day and night version. The rhythm's very laid back and the instrumentation is more diverse. It has a mix of western elements with the harp, there's a lot of percussion instruments, not particularly from any one culture. There's two flutes playing in parallel fourths, which is actually an Asian trope known to western audiences. And the santour of course gives it that sand for an element to it. But the way that the music is put together is much more of a town feel. And it's much more of a tranquil, inviting place compared to how the Gerudo used to be represented in Ocarina of Time. So it's really important that how the music in a game communicates to the player how the culture exists within the world and how it interacts with other elements in the narrative. So on that note, we're actually going to carry through examining some of these ideas into our next episode. Our next episode is going to look at farming sim games. And one of the ideas that I'm going to explore there is the idea of the pastoral in music. This is once again a reference of a particular oldness or a particular geoculture that's actually being referenced. The idea of the idyllic countryside setting rather than a more urban sort of environment. So we'll talk about four games that manifest that in different ways, and we'll talk about the contrast that we've seen in those four games. Okay, and that is all the time we have for today's episode of Game Music 101. We will see you next time for Farming Sims. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs>